Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brian Russell. So many knives. Like a wall, just, and I should leave. That's a lot of knives, but it's been so long. I'm not cock blocked by a wall of knives. That and more. But before that, I just want to say something about our Patreon that you can find at patreon.com slash risk. I think some folks might be assuming that we've recovered here at risk from the financial crisis we had during the 2020 start of the pandemic then. And that is very truly not the case. We are still working our butts off to get to a place of breaking even. You know, we're still not back to being able to pay our staff members what they so, so thoroughly deserve. We're still hanging by the seat of our pants here. And so soon, we want to do some brainstorming with you, the fans, on new ways we might be able to get more of you over to patreon.com slash risk, or uh, those of you who are already there to increase your donation amounts. But for this week, let me just say, there's so, so, so many amazing bonus stories, conversation with staff and storytellers, my own personal check-ins, the ad-free versions of the episodes that drop there before the versions on the free feeds with the ads in them. You should really check it out if you haven't already. It's patreon.com slash risk. And we are so, so grateful for everyone's support over there. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess 
whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Kids, <laughs> my voice is just creaky tonight. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is African American Sound Recordings behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number 28. Four more of our favorite stories from the past six months of the show. So it's a perfect time to ask, do you know someone who's never listened to a podcast before or, or who just says their podcasts aren't their thing? It, sound, it might sound nuts to you and me. I'm, I'm a podcast-obsessed person. You probably are, too. Listen, if we want the podcast industry to grow, we need to turn all those non-podcast listeners into podcast listeners. There are a lot of them. Tink Media thinks so too. And in April, they're launching this thing called Adopt a Listener. They're asking you to find someone who says, eh, podcasts aren't my thing, and give them a thoughtful recommendation like <laughs> a best of risk episode there's 44 hours of best of risk episodes now that you can recommend number 12 number 8 number 15 are some of my favorites you can find them all at risk-show.com slash best of risk something that'll get them hooked risk is a proud supporter of adopt a listener and you can go to tinkmedia.com co slash adopt to sign up find resources and learn how you can get involved again that link for tink media is t-i-n-k media dot co slash adopt do it do it do it now in a little bit we're gonna hear from ryan Soroy's heller who you can find at ryanheller.com that's a story that Ryan shared on our Winter Holidays episode, but it's a story that's well worth hearing any time of year. Very relevant to anyone who's worked on giving up destructive habits, but slipped up <laughs> a lot like yours truly. But before that, we're going to hear from Brian Russell. This was an amazing story that Brian told at the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. So without further ado, here is Brian now. The story we call... 
<laughs> we call it Erection for Justice. The only thing worse than uncertainty is uncertainty and being alone. And that's where I was at the beginning of 2020. You know, recently laid off due to the pandemic and just fresh out of a relationship and being single. Had to kind of put things back together and figure out what it meant. I was really lucky to have a small bubble and close friends, so I didn't feel completely alone. I had people to bond with, but that physical intimacy wasn't there anymore, and I missed that. And most of my life, physical intimacy has been the coping mechanism I used to get through the hard times. Thankfully, though, modern science was going to help that out soon because the vaccine was coming. So, you know, it was time for some Moderna and chill. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe a J&J &J pajama jammy jam. So I was ready to see what I can get into. So I did what any aging, horny millennial would do. I went to the internet and found a website with other, you know, hot-to-trot uh, hedonists out there. And after posting some pictures and having some discussions, I found some new friends. And we chatted a little bit and decided that we should meet up. They were a fun couple, uh, Cindy and Paul, and they invited me over to their house. And after a year or two of not experiencing any of that or not really knowing anybody other than my close friends, we, we set some early boundaries that this was just kind of be like, have some drinks, maybe something will happen, but it doesn't have to, like very casual. So I'm excited. And also, I'm really horny and my dick is driving this whole situation now anyway. So, <laughs> so I, I'm looking into it and getting ready to go. They give me the address and I've only lived in the Pacific Northwest for about three years. But in the time I've been here, I've been getting more accustomed to not only the geography, but the geopolitical, you know, of the Pacific Northwest. And when I figured out I was heading about 40 miles outside of Portland, I was a little concerned because I know, <laughs> yeah. In Portland, you know, this is the, the liberal bubble and, you know, black lives matter here and, and there's rainbows and like we can feel supported. And I felt that, but as I headed further down the road, I started to see a lot more All Lives Matter flags and a lot of Trump 2020 and a lot more like Second Amendment kind of stuff. And I, by no means, I'm not taking your guns and I have nothing against people that have guns. I have a problem with people who use guns as a replacement for personality. Like that just seems, <laughs> I don't know, man. But uh, as I head out there, I get to the house, things get a little more rural and working class as they do. And I grew up in the Midwest, so these kind of areas looked very familiar to me. But it also kind of brought up some feelings. because I, I am biracial. My dad looks like Eddie Murphy. My mom is a red-headed Irish woman, and they just kind of took it all together and were like, Psh, that, yep, that's it. That's, I, don't, they don't, I don't look like either of them. But, so, but I, I am a, a black man, uh, just not the one you expected. Um, so I get a little uncomfortable when I get into those sort of places. And 
I get out there, I get to their house, their nice family, you know, normal, like everyday kind of house, knock on the door, and Paul and Cindy come to the door, this cute little hunting dog who's excited to hang out and play too. I'm gonna set some boundaries with that dog, but he's a cool dog, we can hang out also. They're both a little older than me, uh, but let's be honest, I'm not a spring chicken myself. They're like 50s or so. Paul, the best way to describe him is he looks like he used to be like a big, scary, like Harley guy that somebody just deflated. Like, just, he's, he's got like this salt and pepper, uh, like uh, Kenny Rogers kind of hair and a ponytail. And he's got these tattoos that at some point in his life might have been really cool. Like, it was like an eagle, it was all black and gray. At this point, it just looks like a Rorschach drawing that's there to test whether I'm sane enough to fuck this dude's wife. <laughs> Cindy, also, you know, she's pretty charming, uh, very hot to trot soccer mom kind of vibes. Uh, she had a little flannel shirt tied up, a little midriff, and a, a cute little skirt, and did just about everything she could to kind of bend over and pick things up, or like, <laughs> do that elbow on the counter, and. It, it became very apparent she wasn't wearing underwear. Um, I enjoyed the view, but soaking up the whole view of the house too at that point, it, this is, uh, the house is you know, mid-80s wood panel, it's just classic middle-class Americana. But there is something about the house that's a little odd compared to most, is this whole left wall just decorated with knives, like so many knives. Like a wall, just, and, and they're all on these little plaques, you know, like wood print this and like woods that, just daggers, six inches, so many knives. I should leave, that's a lot of knives, but it's been so long. I'm not gonna get cock blocked by a wall of knives. So let's just, let's just go. So we're sitting on the couch, you know, like, I mean, you know, patting the dog, he's hanging out too for a minute, but he goes away, he's really friendly. And Cindy comes and sits right next to me, and Paul's kind of on the other couch adjacent. We're all talking, having a drink, talking about how the year goes. Things are getting a little flirty, and I can feel her thigh against mine, and I haven't felt anything like that in so long. Uh, and I feel her hand, like, on my thigh, and, and then on my inner thigh. Like, no other hand except mine has been there for quite a while now, I can assure you. And it, almost a new feeling, it's been so long, I'm excited. And then, you know, Paul's just kind of like, take it out and show it to her, which I think is a little gruff. Um, you know, like, do you want to see it? And she's like, yeah, and I'm like, okay. And I take my pants down and, and I'm erect, it's, it's been a minute, you know, I'm very excited about what's happening today. And, uh, and she grabs my penis like by the base and I feel a soft hand that's not mine uh, and I, and it goes into her mouth, and I feel this warm mouth and soft lips and a very nimble tongue, and I'm so excited that with all of this, I just kind of arch my back, and I look up, and I notice one of the decorations I didn't see yet. <laughs> this knife in the corner actually has a Confederate flag behind it, and, and a little band that says CSA, Confederate States of America, which as a biracial kid who grew up in the Midwest, that means not my fucking friend. And, but, so, maybe their grandfather gave it to them. Maybe they just got it from the home shopping network in a bulk deal. You know what? 
I'm getting oral reparations right now, so I'm not gonna dwell on the past. Let's focus on right now. So, things move forward as they do, and, and we head off into the bedroom, and there's been sort of, you know, some rules set at this point too, uh, no kissing. There's a special thing for just them. I, I respect that, and I'm horny. So we're in there, and Paul is filming, uh, you know, with his phone and kind of cheering me on, and, and we're just having fun, and as people do in the bed, and at this position and that position, and, that, and it's great, I guess. I mean, I'm here now, and I kind of thought this is what I wanted, but, I mean, it's fun. So, you know, we get to the end. Ah, that, that felt great. And as the... <laughs> As the blood rushes back to the places where I make better decisions, I'm like, hey, you're in a house full of knives. Like, time for an Irish goodbye or a French exit. Like, you should probably go. So I'm near the door, like, finishing up my drink and, you know, petting the dog, which I probably should wash my hands first. It didn't seem sanitary to touch the dog after all that. But as I'm, you know, saying goodbye to my, my little furry friend there, they're talking, and Cindy says... Yeah, it's friendly dog. He's so friendly. He loves everybody, but that dog hates spicks and niggers. <laughs> they don't know I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's not my job to disclose that. Nobody certainly told me they, you know, they were racist before I got here. So, <laughs> so I'm like, oh man, you know, and it, what do I, what do I do about this? And at this point. I kind of feel this stirring, like I haven't felt before. Like I, I'm not turned on. I'm like, I'm actually angry. I'm developing like an angry erection. It's not like an erection for justice. Just like standing defiantly in front of all of your weird nationalist bullshit. Just so I grab Cindy by the hand and just kind of whisk off to the bedroom and. And we get in there, and he's very much in this cuckery position, watching and cheering me on and, and filming. And you know, people say sometimes that uh, you know, it helps uh, guys last longer to like think about baseball or think about this. And I have Cindy bent over and just butt up in the air, and I'm just imagining like Ben Shapiro looking <laughs> in disgust as I just, just <laughs> going. And Throughout all this, as we finally start to get to the climax, and I'm like, what did I do? And I really just want to go, like, Wakanda forever! <laughs> but Paul interrupts my black boy joy and says, come on her face. Now, I'm not one to take advice from a bigot, but <laughs> sounds fun. So pop the condom off, and I come on her beautiful, blue-eyed, Anglo-Saxon face, right in front of her racist husband. And again, the blood is really rushed back, and they're like, hey, you need to go. So I kind of back up, and I'm just looking at what's occurring, and at this moment, Paul puts the phone down and comes over and puts his hand behind her neck and lifts her forward, and it's like very soft, general, beautiful moment. I kind of realized at this moment, too, as they're kissing passionately, looking into her eyes, that that's what I want. I want, I, I didn't come here for just this, like, 
dirty, weird strangers, sex with the people thing. I wanted that intimacy. You know, I wanted to kiss somebody softly. Like, and as much as I want to get lost in this moment about that, I'm watching two racist people snowball my cum. So... <laughs> <sighs> So, I, I've definitely tempted fate enough. It's time to get the fuck out of here. So, put on my pants. Nice knowing you guys. I get in the car and I'm driving home. And I start to have this deep thought thinking about it. Thinking about how comfortable we're dropping the N-word. And how, like, being the type of biracial that I am. Just sort of, like, my race being so ambiguous. Uh, people often call me passable. Passable is something external from me. It's other people deciding what defines me and my nationality. And, and it's crazy, but also it allows me to get into these spaces that like racist white people feel safe in to just kind of sit down and just get that like that Willy Walker meme face, just like, oh, show me how racist you are. <laughs> and um, so I was like, hell yeah, man, that's crazy. And so I grab my phone and I decide, well, I, I do want the last word in this. So I, I, gra I grab my phone and I text, I'm black and your dog's not racist. And although I never spoke to them again, I really do hope that at that moment that he looked down at his phone and noticed a message from me and it's maybe just sort of licking his salty lips. <laughs> he realized what, what I know and what would you guys all know, no matter race, creed, sexual identity, sexual preference, semen is semen. stands up for those whose voices go unheard? Who punishes evildoers who would denigrate others based on the color of their skin? It's the erection of justice! His wife was wanting to have a good time with a hot-blooded white American male. He wanted to stand by and watch. Little did they know, the handsome man who so capably penetrated her had a secret. He was not as white as they thought. His erection stood proudly for justice. Neo-Nazis beware his throbbing spear of equity. Racist swingers take heed. No one can escape the erection of justice. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We're back. I was six months sober from drugs and alcohol when this guy that I was dating for the past year invited me to come home with him for the holidays. This is shortly after he had found me in our guest bathroom. It was about midnight with my face buried in a plate of crushed up Xanax and a dollar bill rolled up into my nose. And when he asked me what I was doing, caught red-handed, I did what I always did, what I always knew how to do, which was deny and lie and minimize the situation. And I told him, Chris, no, 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 no. The doctor told me to take my pills this way because orally doesn't work anymore, which obviously he didn't buy any of. And he gave me an ultimatum that I either go to rehab or we were over. So I did. I went to rehab for 30 days. I ended up going to AA where I met my sponsor. His name was Spiro. Just after rehab, I started to see a psychiatrist who thought it would be a great idea to prescribe me nine different medications from antipsychotics to antidepressants to craving blockers. And by the time the holidays rolled around, I was like a walking zombie. I mean, quite literally foaming at the mouth at times. So leading up to going to Chris's family's house in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I was a nervous wreck. I had spent so much of my life trying to hide what I was doing and who I was that the thought of going up and meeting his incredibly extensive family was horrifying that they would see me for who I was. And as a Jew from South Florida, going up for Christmas festivities to all of these parties was like a foreign concept. So I became like this just bag of nerves and psychosis. So here we are. I get to Chris's parents' house, who I had only met maybe twice before. And I'm trying to put on all of the facades that I could. You know, like the cool guy, the likable, charming, funny, witty guy. And we were in the living room. And I swear, from across the distance, addicts have this, like, sixth sense. I could see in the kitchen this orange pill bottle. 
like gloriously shining, beckoning me forward. And I could read from afar the words Vicodin. It took everything out of me to walk in that kitchen for those next three days, close my eyes, put my head up, try to avoid seeing it, but it whispered in my ear, especially at night. It would just infiltrate my thoughts until Christmas night. We were driving back from one of the hundred thousandth Christmas parties that we had attended with his family, which by that point I was fried. I mean, under all of the medicines that I was on and having to be around so many people and just try so hard to be likable, to be better than I thought I was, we get back to his house and Chris goes up to the bathroom. We were the first ones back. And it was like a switch flipped in my brain and I was on autopilot. I went straight into the kitchen. I grabbed that orange pill bottle. I turned that childproof cap, which in itself is like a catharsis. And I took out one of those little white oval shapes, put it in my hand, stared at it, and just popped it into my mouth. And I felt it slide down my throat. And in that moment, it just felt like everything was going to be okay. And I put the cap back on, the pill bottle on the counter, and I go to turn around, and there's Chris standing right behind me. And I'll never forget the look on his face In his eyes, it was pure rage mixed with sadness and disappointment. And he just looks at me and he says, what the fuck are you doing? And the wheels start spinning immediately. Again, I do what I've always done, which is to take no responsibility. And I say, no, Chris, this is not what it looks like. I just wanted to see what it was, but he saw me. He saw me. And he says, get upstairs, pack your bags. You are flying back to Florida right now. Get the fuck out of this house. And it was like ice went through my veins, like daggers just going all down me. I I was going to lose everything. And I didn't know what the fuck to do. I go upstairs, he's screaming at me the entire time, just chasing me up the stairs, throwing every fuck you he could possibly muster, and I I get it. I get it. And I pick up the phone, and I call my sponsor. It's the only thing I knew to do. And I'm pleading with him, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. Like, he's got every answer in the book in my mind. And he says, Ryan, tell Chris this is part of the process relapse is part of recovery. You'll go to meetings. And so Chris comes in and I'm like, Chris, I'm going to go to meetings. This is part of the process. I'm going to be okay. I'm so sorry. And Chris says, fuck you. This is fucking over. Get out. Fuck you. Fuck you. And he leaves. And I say, Spiro, this is not going to work. I'm done. We're over. And he says, Ryan, you need to do something you've never done in your life. You need to do something different. 
go downstairs and take ownership. Apologize to Chris. Apologize to his parents for what you've done. And I'm like, okay, but, mm, and I tried to negotiate with him, you know, like his parents weren't there. They didn't know. Maybe I could just say something to Chris. There's no reason to bring up everything to everybody. And he says, no, Ryan, this is time to make a change. Be responsible for your actions. And I said, okay, at this point, I've got nothing else. So I start to make that descent downstairs. I hear his parents, they've come home. And it was like one foot in front of the other. I am just filled with embarrassment and shame, trembling like a fucking little leaf. And I get to the base of the stairs in the living room. His parents happen to be standing right there. So I know Chris must have told them. Chris is standing over in the doorway between the living room and the kitchen and he's just glaring at me. And I tell his parents, I have to talk to you. And they look at me and they're waiting. And I say, you know what I've done. So, um, I'm, I'm sorry. And they're looking at me like, what, what are you talking about? And I realize in that moment that Chris has never said anything. And I was going to actually have to admit. So I said, I'm so sorry I took the Vicodin that was on the counter. And his mom looks at me. And then it washes over her face what that means. And then his dad looks at me. And he's this big, warm bear of a man. And he says, that's okay. Listen, anything in our house is yours. You're welcome here. Whatever you need, you take. Don't worry about it. And it was like, you just turned the knife in my heart. I felt terrible because all they wanted to do was make me feel welcome in their home. He didn't get it. And his mom gives him a nudge and a look. And she says, he relapsed. And just when I think that they're going to ask me to leave their home and kick me out, they open their arms and they embrace me and they tell me it's going to be okay. And Chris and I go out for this car ride. It was the longest car ride in the world immediately after. And I just try to convince him that I'll change, that it'll be okay. And as we're driving, it's late, it's black outside, and there's just twinkling Christmas lights everywhere. There's snow on the ground. I see in people's windows the Christmas trees, and it's so beautiful and happy and cheerful. And in this car right now, it feels like the loneliest, saddest place I've ever been. But he stayed. Chris, for his own reasons, gave me another shot. And we've since spent 12 Christmases in Lancaster, Pennsylvania together. We've been married for seven years. 
We have two beautiful kids together. And I've been sober for 11 years. That night was my first, my only relapse. And that was the first time in my life that I had taken ownership, not just over my actions, but of myself. Because I had a choice. I could have done what I always did, or I could give myself the grace to be me. And it's just made all the difference in the world. And for this Jew from, from South Florida, that was my very first Christmas miracle. This is Khalid behind me now, and we just heard from Ryan Sorois Heller. Before that, 
A little interstitial inspired by Brian Russell's story by our own Taj Easton. Folks, the next Risk Live shows are April 17th in Los Angeles at the Hotel Cafe and April 27th in New York at Caveat. Folks, the live shows have been so, so, so strong lately. And people always comment about how meaningful it is, how powerful it is, how different it is to be in the room where it's happening with other people who love Risk, meeting people, meeting the storytellers and me during intermission or after the show. Come on out. It is, again, April 17th at the Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles and April 27th at Caveat in New York. Tickets are always at risk-show.com tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story by John Ober. Oh my gosh, it's an incredible story. I should warn you, there's a disturbing highway fatality in that story, but John shaped the whole story so beautifully. And before that, we're going to hear from the amazing Margarita Franco, who you can find on Instagram at Mas Margarita Franco. Margarita just recorded a second story with us, which is equally amazing, and you'll hear that one soon too. But right now, let's revisit the first time she blew us all away with a story we call the Queen of Poco Way. Pokeway is a street on the east side of San Jose. And in the 70s, it was considered one of the most dangerous places to live. Now, luckily, we didn't know that when we moved there. It was just where the welfare office sent us. We included my mom, my dad, my five brothers, and our boxer dog, Duke. We had moved from a, a middle-class suburb in uh, Orlando, Florida, really because we ran out of money. You know, my dad was having a hard time keeping work. My mom was dating a lot. <laughs> and um, we were struggling in school. And um, frankly, Florida doesn't have a lot of love towards Mexicans, at least not in the 70s. And um, we just weren't feeling it. So anyway, fast forward, we're cruising down Pokeway in our 1966 Dodge Charger painted a periwinkle hue. And we're all stuffed in there. We've got our little U-Haul attached to it behind us with all our belongings. And we pull up Pokeway, and Pokeway is low-income apartments, Section 8 apartments. Some of the windows are broken. They're covered with plywood and cardboard. And we see all these guys on the street, right? And they're like hovering under the popped hoods of cars. And, and there's tools all over the street or the sidewalk. And I remember thinking as I looked out the window, like, 
why would they even work on these dumpy cars? And now I realize those cars were badass. They were 1964 Chevy Impalas, Eldorados, Cutlass Supremes, a couple of Toyota pickup trucks in there, a 1966 Ford Falcon. These guys were just cheering them out, man. And I didn't know, because I was a kid, right? So anyway, we pull up. My brothers and I spill out onto the sidewalk, and we're wearing our Orlando, Florida beach attire. You know, puka shells, Hawaiian shirts, bell bottoms. And all these guys stop working on their cars, and they're just looking at us. And we're looking at them, too. And they're like, they're wearing like white tank tops, you know, and they're all tatted up with these bulging triceps, and they've got like cut off khakis, and they're staring at us, and we're staring at them. And I'm not gonna lie, we looked like the Mexican Brady Bunch. <laughs> but they looked foreign to us, too, because even though we were Mexican American, we didn't know very much about our culture, right? It was the 70s, and we just didn't know. We had never seen Chicanos before. We just didn't know. So they're looking at us, and we're looking at them, and it's kind of like, do you look familiar? But not really, but kind of. And then this turns into sort of a tension, right? And then sort of gravitates to like this primal standoff. And my mom senses the fear in us, and she's unloading the um, U-Haul, and she's got all these hangers in her hands, and she comes over and she plants herself in between these guys and us. And she's got these hangers, and she starts yelling in Spanish, and she's saying stuff, and it looks like she has nunchucks, but they're just hangers. <laughs> these guys, they're all like looking at her, and then they start to scatter. And, and then they're saying like, mira que loca la lady, no, you know, when meter con eso. I'm not gonna mess with her, man, she's crazy. And so they scatter off and go back to working on their cars. And, you know, I just rolled my eyes because I, I, I didn't care what my mother did. I hated my mother. I was 12 years old going on 16. I was rebelling hard. You know, I was mad that we were moving all the time. I was mad that she was dating all the time. <laughs> and in her defense, though, she had had a rough life, right? She, she was from Mexico. She was left in an orphanage while my abuelita, my grandma, came across the border, and then my grandma went back to get her and brought over with my uncle. So she was tough. And at five feet, two inches, she exuded this, how shall I say, like, this batshit crazy lady aura <laughs> that scared even the scariest people. And Poco Way was scary, you know? It was kind of scary. I mean, we were living in a gang neighborhood. And... Um, so anyway, I would walk Duke every day, our boxer, right? Because I was kind of freaked out, and I would just take him with me. And I thought that he would protect me, because he had this barrel chest and smashed-in nose. And, <laughs> and I just thought he, you know, looked tough. But really, the only protection he offered was drool. <laughs> That's it. So um, every day, there was this girl who stood across the street, and she was older than me, and she wore these tiny little cut-off shorts and a tube top. And she stood out there every day. I gathered that her name was Chavela because these guys would pull up in their cars and they'd slow down and they'd go, Orale, Chavela, que pasa? And then she would give them the middle finger. <clears throat> <laughs> I would have been really happy to receive the middle finger from Chavela. But Chavela had her own special greeting for me. Hey, puta! 
Yeah, you little puta with your dog shaking your ass. Huh? Think you're hot shit, don't you, little puta? And I was like, oh my God. How old is she? She looks 25. I'm 12. Okay? And so I put my head down and I just keep walking with Duke, like, just drool along, Duke. Come on. And... I'm walking back, and I think, every time I see her, I swear I'm sweating through my clothes, because I'm just dreading walking on Poco Way. And so I go back to the the back courtyard, which is where we have our apartment, and this neighbor comes up to me, this lady, and she says, "Um, why does Chavela hate you so much? And before I can say anything, my mom sticks her head out our apartment door and says, what? Who hates who? What are you talking about? And then the lady goes into, yeah, the neighbor, Chavela, she hates Marchi. Yeah, she's always telling her to, to pull her pants up or put her pants on algo así, I don't know. And then she hates Duke, too. She doesn't like Duke. And she's always telling her that she's a little puta. And so my mom is like staring at her and then looking at me to confirm. And then I see that batshit crazy look, right? It's, it's coming. <laughs> And my mom shakes her head, and she's like, no, 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 not my daughter. And she starts marching through the courtyard, and this muttering turns into a crescendo, and she's saying in Spanish, no, senor, no vas a hacer eso a mi niña, to my daughter. You're not going to do that. And all the neighbors now hear the commotion, and they're now standing on their porches to see what's going on, and the upstairs neighbors are opening their windows, and they're sticking their heads out, and my mom is marching over there, and then I hear somebody say, get her, Mrs. Blanco! We've only lived here a week. How do they know? How do they know her name? And, and so my mom goes right up to the end of the curb on our side of Hokoway, and she puts her hands on her hips, and she goes, hey. She gives her like that Danny Trejo stare, right? And she's like, hey, puta, with the little tube top and your ass hanging out. And Chavela, you know, she saw my mom coming. She just looked a little surprised, like, who the fuck is this crazy lady? But she was, she was caught off guard, and she sees my mom, and she stares at her, and then she goes, she gives her the middle finger, and my mom just charges across the street and grabs Chavela by the neck and pulls her face up to her own, and she goes, in Spanglish, she says, you have a problem con mi niña with my daughter, huh? She's 12. How old are you? What are you doing picking on a kid, huh? And Chavela, she's trying to struggle free from my mom. And oh, now all the neighbors are yelling and they're screaming like, hit her! And I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? And I'm thinking, stop, stop, please do not hit my mother, please. And, and I can't believe that my mom is actually fighting for me either. And, and so Chavela is like trying to, to break free from my mom's clutches, but my mom has like a vice grip on her. And then Chavela is still trying to, to break free, and she says, she just walks around here with that stupid dog shaking her ass, and my mom headlocks her, like, really professional. And I'm like... <sighs> and the neighbors are going wild at the headlock move, because it's like, now it's an MMA event, right? So... Chavela's still trying to break free, but my mom's really got her good, because she's good, my mom. And, and then all of a sudden, I see in Chavela, like all the bravado draining from her face, and her body goes kind of limp. And, and then Chavela, she does the most baffling thing. She starts to cry. 
And she says to my mother, loud enough for all of us to hear, she says, I got nobody, man. I'm out here alone, and I hate myself, okay? And my mom lets her go, and all the neighbors are quiet. And my mom is looking at her, and, and for just a second, I feel like my mom is looking at her like she recognizes that feeling, and my mom has a little bit of tenderness toward her. And I'm still across the street going like, what is going on here? And Chavela is quietly crying, and my mom puts her hand up, and Chavela like puts her hand up because she thinks my mom's going to hit her. And she's still sobbing and wiping snot from her nose, and then... My mom goes to hug her, and my mom says, Hijita, you're not ugly, baby. You're beautiful. It's okay. You're going to be okay. And Chavela sobs and just falls into my mom's arms, and my mom is rocking her and stroking her hair, and the neighbors are all clapping. <laughs> and the neighbors are crying, and I'm just standing there going, what is going on? And then my mom, she lets her go, and she gives Chavela a reassuring look, you know, like, you're going to be okay. And then my mom turns around, and she sees all the neighbors watching, and she loves it. <laughs> she loves this minute. She's on stage, and she's eating it up. And she walks across the street really daintily, and she's, like, waving to everybody. <laughs> And she can't believe this is all happening because of her. And as she walks past me, she slows down and she says, she won't bug you anymore. And she doesn't, ever. I'll never forget that day because it was the first time I felt important to my mother. And I felt like, I don't know, I just, I didn't think she would ever fight for me like that. We only stayed on Pokeway for like eight more months, but for eight months, man, we had major street cred. <laughs> Nobody was going to mess with us. My mom owned that street. She was the queen of Pokeway, and that's for you, Mom. I love you. Te quiero mucho. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready for a showdown! In this corner, from San Jose, California, weighing in at 100 pounds, it's Javela! Hey, puta! Yeah, you little puta with your dog shaking your ass, huh? Think you're hot shit, don't you, little puta? And in this corner, Mrs. Blanco! Hey, puta, with the little tube top and your ass hanging out. You have a problem con mi niña with my daughter, huh? She just walks around here with that stupid dog shaking her ass. No, señor, no vas a hacer eso a mi niña, to my daughter. You're not going to do that. She gives her the middle finger, and my mom just charges across the street and grabs Chavela by the neck and pulls her face up to her own, and she headlocks her, like, really professional. And the neighbors are going wild at the headlock move. And Chavela, she's trying to struggle free from my mom. And oh, now all the neighbors are yelling, and they're screaming, like, get her, Mrs. Blanco! And Chavela, like, all the bravado draining from her face, and her body goes kind of limp and... She starts to cry. 
And my mom says, Hijita, it's okay. You're going to be okay. Oh, that's so sweet. So it's the mid-90s, and I've spent the day rafting with three friends on the South Fork of the American River in Northern California, Jolie, Chris, and Claudia. And we are college friends, and we're fellow whitewater guides out for the first trip of the season. Pretty cold, but the air is crisp, clear, and it's really a beautiful day, just a perfect day. At 31, I'm an environmental sciences grad student who moonlights as a whitewater raft guide. and. They pretty much think I'm a senior citizen, but me, I'm just happy to have an opportunity to avoid impending adulthood. So we get to the takeout, pack up all the gear, and drive out into the sunset, and it truly was a beautiful sunset. All I can think about is heading for our favorite taqueria and beers and burritos. I hear the motorcycles before I can see them in my rear view. When they appear, I see that there's eight to 10 of them and they're out for a Sunday ride. It's actually Valentine's Day. And they look so carefree. We are starting down a long, sloping, rightward curve, and they begin to pass me on the outside of the turn, on my left, and they're in the fast lane. And I noticed that one of the bikers who has a passenger is slowly, imperceptibly weaving left and right. And then I watch in horror as he slowly drifts left toward the guardrail at 70 miles per hour. And the impact is sickening. It's an explosion of flesh, bone, steel, and asphalt. And we are horrified at what's happening right next to us outside the window of the car. I pull over quickly, and we jump out and pull out all of our gear. Because, you see, the four of us just a week earlier had all graduated with our EMT certification. And it's not that we wanted to become working EMTs and first responders. We just wanted to be better prepared for what to do if something went wrong on the river or in the backcountry. So miraculously, the passenger, a woman, was standing at the shoulder. So Chris and Claudia respond to her leaving Jolie and I to respond to the now helmetless biker who is 20 yards away, face down in the fast lane. I grab all of my gear and my first aid, and I am absolutely petrified. We walk 
toward this man, and I can see that blood is pooling by his side. His body is heaving. He is still alive. I'm trying to fight back the panic. I'm trying to fight back the tears. So I resort to the classic mantra of first responders, airway, breathing, circulation, airway, breathing, circulation, in hopes that it will momentarily convince me that I can do something, that I can help this man. Now, like petrified robots, we orchestrate a turn so that we have any chance whatsoever of establishing an airway because there's nothing we can do unless we can get air to this man. When we turn him over, his face is gone, lost somewhere along the roadway. And under the circumstances, there is nothing we can do. Our training and our equipment doesn't allow us to do anything. And again, I continue to try to fight back the panic. I can hear him groaning, and I try to assure him that it's going to be okay. Help is on the way. As I sit there leaning over his mangled body, I notice that gawkers are still driving past, looking at me horrified. And I think, well, how the fuck do you think I feel? At some point, a woman calmly walks up and sets something next to me. It's an arm. It's his arm. And I hadn't even noticed it was missing. On his bicep is a tattoo that says, Mother, neatly framed by a heart. And then, out of the chaos, steps a man, calm, confident, all business. I'm an ER doc, he says. Let me take a look. He had also been driving by and felt an obligation to help. After taking deep pulses in his thigh, in his armpit, he looks at us, looks at his watch and says, he's dead. You're done. So I pick up my gear, take off my gloves, and I lay them next to his body because I want nothing to do with them. With the whir of a helicopter I can hear approaching, I walk through the sirens and the gridlock and I sit on the shoulder of the highway and I sob. I know that my friends are hurting too, but I have nothing for them. The drive home is quiet. We talk a bit, but mostly have nothing to say. As I try to sleep that night, my brain goes over the images again and again and again. I awake and I am sickened. I try to suppress, repress, and forget, but I cannot make the images go away. It just doesn't work. It's as though I've turned my train of thought over to Wes Craven and Stephen King. Now. At this point in my life, I'm, I'm not really a touchy-feely sort of guy. I'm not really someone who talks a lot about my feelings. Growing up, my parents loved me, but we didn't talk a lot about feelings. And if you hit a rough patch, you just plow through it and you move on. But I begin to have this almost compulsion to share this story, to 
literally and figuratively talk it out of my body. Now, this is kind of problematic because this isn't what we do in a polite society, just share gruesome shit with random people. At first, I tell my fellow EMT graduates, and of course they are horrified. It's, it's like nothing that we even had talked about in class. And then I approach friends, family, co-workers. And after a grim content warning, many of them balk. But for those who consent, I unload the gore and their jaws just drop. And over the course of a week and a dozen plus retellings, each time my load lightens a bit and the pain diminishes a bit. And after a week, I'm just done. I'm done. Now, it's not like it didn't happen. The images are still there, but they're tucked away neatly in some small part of my brain to be accessed on my terms, to be thought about when I want to think about them. And I had somehow organically stumbled on a way to normalize this pain and normalize this trauma, to take away its venom, I hadn't known any of this at the time, but years later I understood this to be a way of working through it. I think about that 31-year-old guy who kept all of this inside, who didn't talk with others, and he seems dark. So, this has always made me feel a deep compassion for those who carry heavy pain and trauma. It pains me to think that there are those who carry such things alone. Years later, just a few years ago, I learned that a friend and co-worker has gone through an unimaginable painful loss. And I try to reach out to him, but it is clear that he needs time and space, and my heart aches for the pain I know he is dealing with. Five months later, we finally get together over beers, and at first, we talk about the trivial stuff. Our pets, the NFL, work politics, really all trivial bullshit under the circumstances. I mean, it is so wonderful to see my quick-witted, big-hearted, sarcastic friend, but he is different. How could he not be? I let him know that he is free to talk about anything he wants, but it's absolutely up to him. And at first, he tests the water with some background details. And then he launches into a story of unimaginable pain and personal loss and trauma and tragedy. I am stunned at what I am hearing, at what he has been carrying all this time. Sitting there oblivious to the rest of the world, we cry. Finally, we come up for air, and he says, I haven't told that story to anyone except my therapist, and I I wasn't planning on telling it to you. It just happened. 
I said, I am deeply grateful that you trusted me enough to share this with me. You don't have to carry it alone. That is almost all of this week's episode, folks. This is Patty Griffin behind me now. And we just heard a story by John Aubert, who you can find on Instagram at Lost Hills 2020, Hills with a Z. And before John, we heard an interstitial, a sort of world wrestling, <laughs> whatever sort of thing. Created by Taj Easton, uh, inspired by that story that preceded it by Margarita Franco. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We're back. And that is all for this week's episode, folks. We will be back next week with all new stories, stories that will be up for contention six months from now for the best of risk number 29. So stick with us, folks. And remember, today's the day. Take a risk. And you are not alone. Playing. 
fire in your head and lay with me tonight. You are not alone, laying in the light. Put out the fire. Lusty country bigot housewife. He was a Confederate flag loving, knife wielding xenophobe, antsy for a good cuckolding. They were about to be skillfully fucked by the erection of justice. Hello, Hello kids. kids. <laughs> <laughs>